There's an uneasiness growing within today's parents. Questions arise around what our kids are being taught, exposed to, and influenced by. Thankfully, a fully engaged, well-informed parent is a powerful thing. And that's why I support Answers in Genesis, and I would recommend you do as well, because it's important to remember that the battle for our kids' minds isn't one in the courts or the classrooms. It's one from the safety and comfort of our own home. So be the difference our kids need and visit www.answers.gift today. What's pietism and what does it have to do with the modern church? This is episode 87 of En Route. that is at the intersection of church and Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. So what image comes to mind when I use the word piety or pious? My guess is that you're thinking of someone who is very outwardly religious and may have a kind of air of superiority around them. They kind of think that they're better than anyone else. For people of a certain age, that image might be one of Dana Carvey's church lady. But instead of thinking of piety as a smirking and prim guy wearing a dress and a wig, you actually might want to think of John Wesley, the founder of what became Methodism, who, sitting at a church in London, had this experience where he said that his heart was strangely warmed. Pietism is really about how we can live out our faith. How do we practice what we hear in Scripture? And how do we live it out in our world today? Well, in this episode, I talked to Chris Gertz. He's a professor at Bethel Seminary in St. Paul. Chris grew up in the Evangelical Covenant Church, an evangelical denomination founded by Swedish pietists. In this episode, we talk about pietism, looking at it beyond the stereotypes, and really trying to learn how this practice can help the modern church. So, here's my conversation with Chris Gertz. for coming on today and um, helping kind of to have this conversation about um, what pietism is all about. Sure, glad to be here. I think the first thing is just kind of a basic question of what is pietism? Um, And then maybe also a little bit about your story because uh, you come from a a pietist background. Yeah, that's right. So it's, pietism is... um, very old and musty in some ways, right? It's it's a movement that starts in 17th century, what's now Germany. Uh, and at the time, it's a pretty significant movement to renew Lutheran and Reformed and other Protestant churches. So 
This is about 30 some years after the 30 years war, 100 plus years after the reformation. And part of what inspires pietism is the sense that um, churches are well-established, right? And they're well-funded. They're usually connected to the government. Uh, but the pietists feel like there's not a lot of life in churches, right? Uh, like uh, um, their sermons being preached, what difference they make is a little harder to tell, or at least that's what pietists believe. And, and so it's not really an attempt to start a new kind of Christianity, a new kind of church. It's, it's usually a sort of reform from within impulse, right? How do we take a Lutheran church and make it more vibrant? How do we how do we help people make their faith active in love of others is, is a big pietist slogan early on. So, um, yeah, so it, it spreads and often in very like mundane sorts of ways to our ears. It spreads through like small group Bible study is one of its early innovations, which sounds really unremarkable in like 21st century Christianity, but it uh, was pretty unusual at the time to have pastors sit down with just lay people, men and women, different denominations, and um, to pray, study the Bible, sing hymns, do devotional work together. Um, so that's how it starts. And then it, it starts to get a sort of institutional center in a city called Halle, in what, what uh, is now Eastern Germany. And you've got uh, universities, schools, orphanage, pharmacy, museums, printing press. So they send out missionaries to places like India and the Caribbean. Uh, and, and so that's where pietism's reach starts to expand and starts to reach uh, lots of parts of the world. Uh, and then there's kind of a related movement called Moravianism we can talk about if you want. Um, it's sort of a branch of all this. But then it kind of dies, right? Like if you go to Germany today and, and ask like, where's the pietist church? No one will have any idea what you're talking about. Um, it's, it's maybe there in pockets, but for the most part, within 100 years, it's gone as a movement. And so what survives, what I tend to think about as pietism is more of a religious ethos that you keep finding in different kinds of churches, different kinds of traditions that sort of owes something to that legacy or heritage, but isn't necessarily like connected to it formally. And you still will not find like pietist churches. Um, maybe some denominations though are a little bit more shaped by it. And so the reason I'm interested in pietism is I grew up in the Evangelical Covenant Church which is a pretty small denomination. It's mostly in the Midwest, um, to some extent the two coasts, and uh, you know probably like 200,000 people nowadays. So it's not a large denomination. It was founded by Swedish immigrants in the, uh, the 1880s. And so these were people who had been part of a pietistic revival in Sweden, came over here and like uh, one and a quarter million Swedes came over here, so there are a lot of them. And uh, some of them joined Lutheran churches and then these Lutherans decided to form their own church in 1885 called the Mission Covenant Church, or now it's the Evangelical Covenant Church. So this is what I grew up in. I was, I, uh, I'm a fifth generation covenanter. And it was always a weird church to belong to because most people had no idea what it was. Uh, it sounded kind of Lutheran, kind of Baptist, kind of Evangelical, kind of mainline. And over time, what I learned is it, it was really strongly influenced by pietism. And uh, at least some of its leaders have clung to the language of pietism to explain why it doesn't fit all these other categories. Mm -hmm. So that, that's where my personal interest uh, really starts with, with pietism. And it's, I'm not like a church historian, really. I should probably make that clear right off the bat. I'm, I'm really a diplomatic military modern Europeanist, but because of my own story and because I work at a Baptist university that has pietist roots, Bethel University, um, I've kind of been drawn into this and ended up writing more about it over the last 15 years or so. Yeah, I think before we go any further, it may help to talk a little bit about um, where you teach because that it does have a strong pietist background. And I think 
um, in the book that you helped write, The Pietist Option, is it Lindquist that was the president? Yeah, uh, Lundquist, Carl Lundquist, yeah. yeah. Uh, who, it was kind of an interesting how he basically lived kind of an example of pietism, at least in, in the modern era. Can you kind of explain a little bit about what um, Bethel is all about and where pietism fits in? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the Covenant Church is hard to explain. Bethel is also probably hard to explain. There are like five of them in the United States. This is the one in suburban St. Paul, Minnesota, that was founded by Swedish Baptist immigrants. So go back to what I just said about the Covenant Church. Some of the Swedes who came out of that revival of the 1840s and 50s became Baptists um, mm-hmm. through meeting German and English Baptists. And so they came over to the United States, and of course, they didn't join the Lutheran Church. They started forming Baptist congregations, which came together uh, as what was for a long time called the Baptist General Conference, and now it's called Mysteriously Converge, which um, that's a whole other story to go into. Anyway, um, those Baptists found a small seminary in Chicago in 1871 that 150 years later is now Bethel University. And so it's a Baptist school. There are a lot of Baptist colleges and seminaries in the United States. Uh, it's evangelical broadly, but I think what's distinct about Bethel is that kind of pietist heritage. And in some ways, um, it feels like it softens some of the edges of the evangelical and Baptist heritage. And I think Carl Lundquist is as good a way to explain it as anyone. And uh, he's a Bethel graduate who comes back in 1954 and serves as president until 1982. So Carl Linguist is a pastor. He's not academic. Uh, and he presides over this period of like uh, GI Bill fueled growth. Bethel doubles in size twice. It moves out to the suburbs. But it's also a time when Bethel is kind of struggling to explain what it is. Like it's not just Swedish immigrants anymore. It's people from different sorts of Protestant backgrounds. And it's got connections to like evangelicalism, but it doesn't quite feel like other evangelical schools. And so Lundquist starts talking about pietism as being the distinctive. And I think what he means is, first of all, that the faith is not mostly about belief. It's not mostly about your ability to sign off on a creed or a confession or to affirm a catechism, something like that. It's more like, how do you live out your faith? Or for him, it's really like, what is your relationship with Jesus? He talks all the time about having a kind of warm-hearted relationship with Christ. And for him, that mostly means devotional practices and spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines. Um, In 1975, he takes a sabbatical. He travels to like 40 centers of spiritual renewal around the world, Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant. And he develops this huge library that's still in our seminary library of um, books by all sorts of Christians about prayer, meditation, fasting. So I think that's where it starts for him. Like, how do Christians cultivate the sort of lived faith that's primarily about relationship with, with God through Christ? But he also is concerned about how you live in community. And uh, he's very concerned that, um, first of all, within any Christian community, you, you're not uh, let yourself be torn apart. You, you don't heresy hunt. You, you don't draw lines so sharply that you can't transcend disagreement. Um, at Bethel, we tend to call it the ironic spirit of pietism, this kind of peaceable impulse to say we can disagree well together, right? Which is an impulse that's been challenged the last 10 to 20 years. But I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to live out. And then finally, he's very service-oriented. So, I mean, Bethel, under Lundquist, starts adding things like business programs, but it also adds social work and teaching and nursing. Uh, And um, even when people are going into professions, he has this sense of kind of a pastoral calling. Like, you're doing it as 
uh, a way to live out your faith in the world, and especially to live it out in places of hurt and suffering. I mean, he has a really interesting response to the Vietnam War and to the strife of the 60s. He he says, uh, uh, conservative Christians, don't just like turn turn your back to this. Don't just dismiss it because it has long hair and calls itself a hippie. Like, listen to the, to the pain that it's describing. Listen to the injustice that it's calling out and think about how we can respond to that. So I, I always find that just mildly countercultural. Like very mildly, like he wore a suit and tie and he had short hair, like he wasn't, he wasn't a figure of the 60s, but I, I would chalk that up to pietism as well. The sense of like Christianity has to be felt as much as believed and, and above all else has to be lived out in love of others, right? And I think that idea still does prevail. A lot of our students are going into service professions one way or another. I think one of the things that's kind of a misunderstanding of pietism is maybe a sense of, I guess, holier than thou. The word pious obviously is in there. Um, that it's not really concerned about um, social issues. Um, it's just concerned more about the church. But that's not what you've been talking about. It's not what your the book, your, your book talk, the pietist option talks about. Why is there that kind of missed connection there people that people that you have people have a different viewpoint than what is the truth yeah and i don't think it's untrue necessarily i just think um i mean i think most christian traditions have uh, different kinds of seeds within them right i mean the strengths very easily turn into weaknesses right and and kind of impulses can go in lots of different ways so i don't, I don't think it's unfair i'm not surprised like partly like it's it's easier to deal with someone already equates pietism with something rather than they have no idea what it is. So like if someone tells me, well, pietism sounds like being holier than thou, right? And pietist is a pejorative term back in 17th century Germany. It, it does have this sense of, oh, you think you're so pious, which, which I mean, it should be problematic, right? There is this kind of sense of, are you saying you're a superior Christian to all the other just ordinary Christians around you? That That's something pietists really do have to struggle with. Um, and I think sometimes where pietism does go wrong is it develops this sense of, well, the way you test that this is really authentic live faith is you have all these rules you're supposed to follow and all these boundaries you're supposed to stay within. Or, or sometimes it's all these things you don't do, right? So for all my admiration of Carl Lundquist, he had this very strongly culturally conditioned sense of to live a holy life was not to drink, not to smoke, not to go to movies, not to go to Broadway plays, not to dance, right? Which... Um, I don't necessarily associate with pietism, but I certainly associate with a kind of uh, like middle-class, white, suburban, Midwestern sort of Protestant piety, right? And, you know, to some extent, I, I think he kind of struggled with that. But at the same time, he also said uh, this kind of holiness that we're striving for, this piousness we're striving for, does need to be lived out, right? And so he, he thought a lot about the relationship between personal holiness and then social holiness, right? And maybe this makes more sense if you come from a Methodist or a Wesleyan background, right? How, how, do, we, how do we live out love of God and love of neighbor, right? And, and how do we uh, live conscious of the fact that, um, as Paul says, we're not supposed to be conformed to the patterns of the world, but be renewed by learning, right? So I, I can understand where that sense of like pietists are holier than I'll come from, and you can find plenty of evidence of it. I just guess like in my own case, I've just known too many people who aren't like that. Like, I think there's also a kind of humility and modesty about pietism 
Um, there is a kind of like self-awareness that if you do it right, you know, you are reflecting on where you're falling short and you are reflecting on at the same time, the gifts that you have. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's humble in the best sense in my experience of it. I think the real concern, I think of the fairest criticism that you you've alluded to Dennis is the concern for social issues, right? Because even if you do have that sort of sense of um, making your faith active in love of neighbor, a sense of social holiness, and we're supposed to, you know, we're supposed to um, feed the hungry, and we're supposed to uh, shelter uh, people without shelter, and, and visit the prison, right? Like all, all those kind of New Testament themes, that doesn't address the causes of suffering, of hurt, of injustice, of inequity, of exploitation, of marginalization. Um, this past year, I've been involved in an online conversation with people from oh, 12 different Christian traditions. I'm the pietist in the group. And every month we write about how we think about following Jesus is kind of the broad cue for it. And then everyone else writes a response. And so I, I took my shot at explaining pietism. And I think the most meaningful, I guess, pushback or critique I got was from Ferris Blount, who represents the Black church tradition in the conversation. And he said exactly that, like, um, you know, the pietists you're talking about are, are trying to feed the hungry. They're trying to, uh, to, to give water and shelter and education and care but they're never addressing the root cause of any of this. They're not asking about like the systems and the structures that created these conditions that led to this suffering and this exploitation. Does pietism have anything to say to that? And I, I said, I think that is a weakness of the tradition. I mean, partly because I think pietists have this sort of concern, like the church can't become institutionalized, right? If the church becomes an organization that's bent on preserving its power and its wealth and its status, you start to lose some of that vitality, right? We kind of find ourselves back in the position we were in the 17th century or back in the position that led to the Swedish revival I've alluded to. But at the same time, can you really address structural and systematic problems if you don't have structures and systems? Can you do that all at a grassroots kind of level, right? Can you do that? And I think Pietists would say, well, at the grassroots, what we can do is care for people, right? But I'm not sure they've got a real, we, they, we really have a great way of understanding then what do we do about systemic racism? What do we do about institutionalized inequalities around the world or within our societies? I, I think our impulse is to love and to care. We don't necessarily have the same resources, I think, to deal with what, what hardwires this world for injustice. And so I, that, that's the place where I feel like I need the help of other traditions. One of the things I think that I've noticed and kind of learning a little bit about pietism is that some of how it is lived out from, and, and this is coming from Europe, isn't that different from the black church tradition? Um, where do you see those kind of similarities? And I think I, I know where we kind of go going with the differences, but where do you see the similarities there? Yeah, I mean, where I see the similarities, I mean, they're actual points of convergence. Like one of my favorite stories um, is in the Caribbean in the 18th century. Um, uh, it's in a book um, called Rebecca's Revival uh, by John Sensbach, who's a historian at Florida. Uh, and the story of, uh, of Rebecca Proton, who is born into slavery, um, is an African, enslaved African on, I think it's the island of St. Thomas in the Caribbean, uh, converts to Christianity through pietist missions, through Moravian missionaries, becomes one herself, marries a German Moravian, and ends up in West Africa ministering <laughs> to people at a slave trading fortress, right? Um, so there are moments where these stories actually connect, where I, where I think they're more in parallel 
is first of all, this notion of Christianity has to be something more than belief, right? It, it's pretty easy for white Christians in the 18th, 19th, and into the 20th and 21st century to affirm the right kinds of things, and yet they seem to make no difference in their treatment of an entire population, right? And so I think kind of naturally, like the black church has really emphasized, well, belief matters, but what matters more is how you live this out, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's gotta be a lived faith if it's gonna make any difference in the world, right? We, we don't just believe in Christ, we follow Jesus and we are his hands and feet in the world, right? I, I think that's something pietists really have in common with, with broadly the black church tradition, right? I think the other is this really strong emphasis on the church as a community. Like this is not something you can do by yourself, right? I think there is within pietism sometimes this impulse towards just it's it's me and my God, and as long as I get to heaven, that's fine. But that's counteracted by this emphasis on the small group, right? How do we form intentional Christian communities? Um, how do we come together to support each other, to encourage each other, to pray for each other, to 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 love each other in, in times of distress? And man, that that lived experience is key to the Black Church story. Right, like it is the one institution that exists in, like I went to college in Williamsburg, the Baptist church right there, like that existed to help those black folk uh, in a world where they were being brutalized, right? The church existed. And then in Philadelphia with the AME and then throughout the 19th century in the civil rights movement, like that, I mean, much more acutely, I think is felt in the black church tradition. But like, I think my Swedish forebears would understand that, you know, growing up as poor peasants, trying to eke out an existence like where, where do you find a sense of dignity and worth and where do you experience love in the world? Well, you know, maybe to some extent in the formal state church, but definitely in that small group where you come and you read about Jesus and you, you encounter him together. Like I, I would guess that's a kind of affinity at least between the two traditions. So in looking at piety, I ultimately want to kind of get to where it fits with mainline Protestantism, but mm-hmm. I really want to talk just briefly about evangelicalism because obviously that that's in the news, mm-hmm. literally these days. Um, how do you think that Pietism could renew American evangelicalism? Well, that was probably the main hope of the book that you've alluded to. So this came out five years ago, the Pietist option I wrote with a covenant pastor friend of mine named Mark Patty. I mean, I don't think we necessarily said in the book, we're only talking to evangelicals, but both of us come from evangelical backgrounds and work in evangelical settings, and there are things we appreciate about it. And so to some extent, that's who we're talking to. Like historically, Pietism is one of the sources of what comes to be called evangelicalism. So like, uh, I think First Great Awakening, right, in the 1730s and 40s, yeah, to some extent, that's kind of reformed Puritan uh, descendants like Edwards and Whitfield. Also, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, his conversion experience happens through pietism, Moravians, and then the other German pietists. And so a lot of the themes you hear in evangelical piety sound a lot like pietism, right? This notion of you need a born-again experience, that that an authentic Christian experience is one of conversion, not simply being born into a church, not just being baptized, but having, if not like a right now at this moment decision, some sense of turning meaningfully toward God, repenting of your sins. Um, And that's pretty common to pietism and evangelicalism. The sense of having to make, make faith active in the world, you know, I think that shows up in evangelicalism as well. Where I think pietists start to um, have tension with evangelicalism, especially in the 20th century. Like in the Covenant Church, I think it really starts with the fundamentalist modernist split in the early 20th century. And here it comes down to like, what does it mean? What, what is the authority of scripture, right? 
Um, I, I think pietists would tend to say, well, the Bible is not chiefly a source of like scientific information any more than the source of rules and regulations. The Bible for a pietist is primarily the way that God is trying to relate to us, that God is trying to connect to us. I mean, in the covenant, we have the expression that the, the Bible is an altar in which you encounter the living God, mm. right? It's, it's not simply something that needs to be defended on the grounds of modern inquiry, right? Whether it's inerrant or infallible, that, that's not what's meaningful. What's meaningful is, are you, are you coming into contact with God through the Bible? Is the spirit speaking to you through the Bible? That, that's what matters to a pietist about the Bible. And so as some evangelicals at least start making um, uh, certain positions on biblical authority or inspiration or, or, or truthfulness, the standard for belief, I think that raises the hackles of some pietists. Certainly that shows up in the history of the Covenant Church. I mean, I think the other one, and this is why evangelicalism is in the news, is at this point, it's very hard to tell the difference between evangelicalism and white Republicans, right? It, it is so closely identified with um, at least one segment of one political party that you've got people wondering now, does it have any religious distinctiveness at all? Or is it just kind of religious cover for an ideology or political power, right? or white supremacy or, or themes like that. I think that's a fair question. And, and for pietists, that doesn't make any sense, right? Pietism starts because um, churches that have power and wealth are not doing what they should, right? They, they have the appearance of church, they have the form, the semblance, but they don't have any life to them. They don't have any energy. I mean, pietism is a reaction against the notion that Christianity uh, is involved in controlling a culture or having power and authority, like that, that doesn't produce the authentic sort of encounter with God and transformational lived out faith that pietists talk about. So I, I think that's what's also hard for pietists with evangelicals is some of the language is the same, some of the kind of like forms of piety are the same, some of the hymns and worship songs are the same, but a pietist just has no use for this idea of a culture war, right, of trying to Christianize a nation or view the nation as Christian by itself, right? Um, that, that I think is probably, you know, that, that's the most acute problem for me right now that I, I find myself really struggling against and, and feeling like this is such a distraction from who we're supposed to be. And in fact, it's causing um, like a sacrifice of our witness and it's leading us into just unbearable hypocrisy, right? To say that we believe in holiness and then to support someone who is an absolute unrepentant reveling in his sin kind of person as Donald Trump is just very hard for a pietist within evangelicalism to, to understand, right? And it's, it's a real struggle right now. Hmm. So now that you've looked at evangelicalism, and I know that you are, uh, well, you, you grew up in um, the Evangelical Covenant Church, you attend a Lutheran con uh, congregation, mm -hmm. um, and more specifically an ELCA congregation. What does pietism have to teach mainline Protestantism? Sure. Yeah, and I, I really should say, well, I guess I can speak to what it has to teach the ELCA or Lutheranism. I'm, I'm not as familiar with, you know, I've taught in Presbyterian churches, UCC churches, I don't know them as well. You know, partly, again, it's shared roots. You know, pietism doesn't just lead to evangelicalism. It, it, it does feed at least the growth of Lutheranism, certainly. I mean, Philip Spener, the founder of pietism, for a long time is regarded as, you know, second only to Luther in Lutheran theology. 
Um, and like there are splits, but I mean, there's a lot of pietist influence, especially in Scandinavian Lutheranism. So like I come from a covenant background, but half of my family were Augustana Swedish Lutherans, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're the ones who, um, they, they valued the confession a little bit more, the Augsburg Confession. They valued a trained clergy a little bit more than the covenanters did. And so they, they didn't join together, but you know, they always had very similar kinds of piety, similar kind of approaches to worship. They, they sang the same hymns. Right. It, it, so there's a lot of back and forth between those two kind of branches of Swedish Protestantism. Right. In many ways, like growing up covenants, uh, you know, I was growing up theologically Lutheran. I mean, we use Luther's small catechism for confirmation class. Right. And I was baptized as an infant. And, and so, like, the hard thing for me was then coming away from the Midwest, going out to the South and the East and covering like Southern Baptist churches and reform congregations. Like, what is this? This doesn't sound like Christianity as I know it. And kind of, partly because I've married into a Lutheran family, I've come to realize I'm actually more Lutheran than I ever thought I was, right? Um, and so now we go to, to an ELCA church for a variety of reasons, one of which it's a block from our house. Like we want our kids to actually go to a neighborhood church and go to church with their friends. Um, partly it's just not, I don't, I'm sick of driving 15 minutes to the suburbs to go to church. Like it's nice to actually just walk to church. <laughs> uh, and partly because it, it felt like it was my wife's turn, right? She's an ELCA Lutheran. Her dad and her brother are ELCA pastors. And so it's been interesting coming into that tradition and that congregation and denomination as a kind of outsider, you know, with a kind of theological affinity and, you know, just a physical closeness. And thinking, hi, I wonder what pietism has to say to this. And so I've, I've done a class for our, for our congregation, and I've gone to a couple other ELCA churches. And what I end up realizing is it speaks differently, right? In, in the pietist option book, one of the metaphors we borrowed from a Mennonite historian named um, uh, Dave Nold is that pietism is not really about creating something new. It's about leavening what's already there, right? It, it's kind of catalyst for renewal and change. And so if it's actually doing its job right, you don't really necessarily notice a lot of pietism by the end, but maybe it calls out certain things in, so evangelicalism, but maybe in mainline Protestantism, it would call out certain other kinds of things. Um, so when I talk to evangelicals, usually what I'm leaning on is the sense of, well, this is not just about getting to heaven. This is not just about conversion and your relationship to God. It's about how that then is lived out in love of others in a pluralistic society where you maybe are not trying to be in control, right? Those are the kind of pietistic themes I sound in evangelical settings. In mainline settings, it's probably going back more to the, but in a sense though, it is about personal conversion and personal holiness and relationship with God and devotional practice, right? I mean, like mainline Protestantism in America has its own kind of problem with being too closely associated with the prevailing culture. Right, and with powerful institutions. I mean, it was the establishment of a, until 1950 or so. Mm -hmm. And I think to some extent, this is the problem a lot of mainline churches still find is they, this is in their DNA, this assumption, well, they're, they're just always Norwegians getting off the boat, right? And they'll just come to our church here and it's Minnesota after all, right? And, it, um, and you're so kind of then tied to the status quo, right? I, I think sometimes then, you, you need to think, how are you going to renew that? You know, what, what is this going to look like in the 21st century where the numbers are declining, um, where uh, partly your influence has been so strong, a lot of your social concern is being lived out in lots of other ways, right, through government and nonprofit agencies. I guess my challenge to mainline Protestants is often, um, so we're supposed to love God and love our neighbor. Um, are those exactly the same thing? Or, I mean, do we only love God by loving our neighbor? Or are there other ways we love God that maybe don't have a social impact? 
know, are, are there aspects, I mean, is there something to the idea of a personal relationship with God or personal devotion or spiritual discipline? Um, I'm really glad I'm in a church that takes social justice seriously and its social witness seriously. And so that's social holiness theme, right? But I also do wonder, but um, is personal holiness still important? And that doesn't have to mean we don't go dancing or smoking or drinking, but what would personal holiness mean? And are there ways to do that that just don't sound like, you know, um, uh, evangelical kind of puritanical sort of killjoy tendencies? Uh, when we think about sin, yes, I absolutely am glad to be in a place that challenges me to think about my privilege, my complicity in systems that oppress people. But I also want to say about what does personal sin look like? Is that the only kind of sin we talk about anymore? Are there other kinds of things getting in the way of our relationship with God and with others? Um, so I guess that, that's the pietist in me is saying, well, I love this about, about how you love your neighbor. And now can we go back to what this like love of God looks like and what devotion looks like and what holiness looks like? And you know, partly I want to keep my mouth shut because I'm new, right? And I, I don't know. And I don't want it to just be this outsider who comes and says, oh, I'm going to fix this, right? I was in a Lutheran church like a month ago giving a talk about evangelicalism. And the guy who was setting up the tech for me said, oh, good, you're going to tell us how to get lots of new members because that's what evangelicals do, right? Like they just get they church growth. And I had to tell them, oh, Oh, I, I, I need to tell you some stories about Willow Creek and all the mega churches. Like, this is not what I'm here to do. So I, I, I want to be cautious and not, not sound like I have solutions or something, but it just my, my response to someone who's living in it is, man, this, this, I love this thing and how it's different from evangelicalism. And then there's the pietist part that says, man, I really missed this part of it too, if, if that makes sense. You know, so do you think that there is a way of rekindling some of that? lived out experience without it kind of you know trying to tell people what to do or to you know that there is some type of a, of a renewal but it's not necessarily out up front yelling and screaming and all of that yeah and that's my kind of renewal is i i'm not like uh i'm not billy sunday right i'm not even billy graham like my my kind of renewal is always going to be like one person at a time I mean, there's a reason I like being a college professor. I, I like the idea of like renewal is starting in learning, you know, in a class, you know, in, in a study, in a book, like in a relationship. And so like that, that, to me, that's the hope, right? It's, I don't think it's ever going to be the kind of numbers it once was. It's never going to be the kind of power and influence it once was. And we shouldn't necessarily strive for that. Or we should open for new populations to have that kind of influence over us. Um, I guess like at best, like what I appreciate about mainline Protestant settings I've been in is, man, they are just open to hearing ideas, right? Like they're, they they don't perceive this as a threat. If I come in and say something critical about the LCA, like they, they're glad to listen to that. Like I really appreciate that kind of ethos. And partly what I have to recognize is I, I think like the piety and the devotional life is there. There are ways of doing this within the context of like mainline Lutheranism right, or within the restorationist tradition, or within liberal progressive Christianity, they're just not ways I'm familiar with, because I grew up in, you know, my kind of pietist evangelical covenant world, um, but I, so I guess I want to say, like, you know, take those seriously, like, think about how you live those out, and, and think about the relationship between this kind of personal, individual sort of renewal, and then witness and evangelism and discipleship and justice and, and maybe something as grand as church renewal, whatever that's going to look like. 
So I, I don't know. This, this is where like, it's easy for me to be a historian. I can describe things that have already happened. As soon as we start turning to what was the next week and year and decade hold, and I just, I don't even know like what my kids are gonna be doing in, in five or 10 years, let alone what, what the main line is gonna look like or evangelicalism is gonna still be there. I appreciate being asked though. That's very kind of you. You're welcome. Yeah. Well, I, I think it sounds like, and, and maybe for both evangelicalism and mainline Protestantism, there's, has been, I think these days, and, and I know that in your book, there's a lot of talk about um, H. Richard Niebuhr's Christ and Culture. Um, which I read in seminary. And, um, you know, there is that whole, and I think definitely in, in uh, mainline Protestant um, circles, there definitely is that kind of Christ, the transformer culture. And within evangelicalism, it seems like it's either Christ against or Christ above culture. But you actually bring up a whole different ethos that is not either of those, but it's Christ the servant of culture. Can you explain a little bit about what, what you meant by that? Yeah, and like the Niebuhr categories, I, I, I'm interested to hear that you've encountered them in seminary. They're, they're categories we use. Like I teach a, a class called Christianity and Western Culture, and a lot of it is meant to help Bethel students think about how do you relate to culture, whether it's you know the sciences and the workplace and politics and economics. And, and so we use those categories a lot. Um, yeah, I think you're right. First of all, I'll start with evangelicalism. There, there's kind of this, there's this war within the evangelical soul, right? There's the one like, oh, the world is, is too far gone. You know, we're just trying to get to heaven. Uh, the world is a source of temptation, right? It's dark and it's desolate. And there is this kind of like withdrawal from sort of impulse. That's the against culture. Or like our job is to be against the world. Our job is to be countercultural. And, and the greatest, the worst thing you can be is worldly, right? Um, and conversely, like one impulse then is, well, how can we take this over, right? How can we uh, take over like institutions of influence, right? The, the um, seven sites of influence, right? Carl Lundquist even had this notion of like, Bethel is here to train, uh, he called it um, maybe unwisely, a task force for the infiltration or the penetration of culture, which I think from the outside probably sounded a little bit like, oh, you are from the religious right. Yeah, and like you had to kind of know who Carl Lundquist was to say, well, what he meant is, We'll send nurses to go care for people. That's how we'll penetrate culture, right? So I think that's absolutely true. I think those are kind of the impulses within evangelicalism. What pietism suggests perhaps is a mild difference for both is this servant of culture idea. And this comes from a scholar named Dale Brown. So Dale Brown grows up in the Church of the Brethren, which historically comes from early 18th century Germany, kind of pietists who have been persuaded of adult baptism. So they're Anabaptists too. And then they come to Pennsylvania and then they spread. And so Church the Brethren is a kind of mainline offshoot of that. And so Dale Brown does some of the early work to really turn pietism studies into something that speaks English. And he's doing a lot, for example, to help my sort of covenant forebears recover pietism. And he writes a short book called Understanding Pietism. That's still a pretty good introduction. And I came across a speech he gave at a Brethren college called Elizabethtown in Pennsylvania. Like this is about 30 years ago before he died. And he was reflecting on this sort of tension between being a pietist uh, who feels called to a life of devotion and relationship with God and love of others, and then an Anabaptist who is supposed to be um, uh, committed to discipleship, right, and to non-resistance, but also to non-conformity with this world. 
I was trying to think like, can these fit together? And he said, well, maybe they're in a dialectic relationship. Maybe there's a kind of give and take between the two of them. And the way it came together for him is this notion that we, we serve the Jesus we just talked about during Holy Week who washes the feet of his disciples, right? As a model to the rest of us. And you know, this resonates because this is actually a practice in brethren churches, unlike most of our churches. And he said, like, maybe then the, the job of a pietist is um, to not try to get ahead on top of culture, to not separate yourself from culture, right? Not, not to try to watch the world burn, not to try to uh, control every um, fiber of the world, but sensibly to serve as you're called and gifted, right? And it sounds very modest, and it doesn't sound transformative, right? Like, uh, um, I mean, like, as I watched on the ground, I actually think this is probably how a lot of evangelical and mainline Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox Christians actually do live this out, right? I mean, like, where, where do I have neighbors I can care for? How do I do that? What resources do I have to give? I think sometimes we just, like, maybe we, we, we short sell what that can accomplish and what difference that can make, or we don't feel like that's religious enough or something. Um, so I don't know, like I, I remind myself of that, like this week I'm catching up on grading and I really can't stand grading. <laughs> I feel like, is this doing anything? Is this like ushering in the kingdom or something? Is this bringing about transformation of culture? And I, I try to tell myself, well, maybe this is the service I need to provide at this point in these students' lives. And then there are other things I like doing more that I find more meaningful and, and, and fruitful. Um, yeah. I, I, so I, I, I don't know if that's enough. Maybe that's, maybe that's too small a thing, but I, I feel like it's at least something that's manageable. And it's something we can all figure out in our own context. Maybe it starts in your, in your family relationships, or maybe it starts with your literal neighbors. Like I, I, I use the phrase, love your neighbors so easily. And then I realize how little I know my actual physical neighbors right down the street. Like it's one reason we've gone to this church is like, I feel like I need to know my neighborhood better. And COVID has actually helped do this. Like I, I've got to know people who live close to me a little bit better and we walk our neighbor's dog. Like that's, that's an outcome of COVID that I think is maybe something I should celebrate. So what do you think is some, some of the challenges for pietism? Because I think when you talk about servanthood and I, I think especially within evangelicalism these days, I could see people thinking that that's a form of weakness. What are, I mean, that may be one challenge, but what are the things that I think are gonna be a challenge for someone to live out a pietist life? Yeah, I mean, the challenge is like, no one knows what it is, right? <laughs> but, but in a way that's fine. I don't really care. I'm not trying to start a new church or something. It's more like, I mean, can these emphases, can these instincts take root and bring about can they lead to new life, you know, for individuals, for the church, and through the church for the world? That's what I care about. And I think there are some obstacles they run into. And I think what you just named is really important. Like within evangelicalism, especially, there is this sort of sense of strength is connoted in terms of, of defiance, right, of hostility, of aggression. Um, and it's strength associated with a certain vision of masculinity. Um, I, mean, I don't know if you've encountered it. I have a friend named Kristen Dumay at Calvin University who wrote Jesus and John Wayne, right? Mm -hmm. And reading that was really interesting because it didn't necessarily describe the evangelicalism I had known, but it helped me make a lot more sense of the evangelicalism that I think my students have grown up in, whether they're women or men. Like, they are being acculturated by a, by a kind of Christianity that says, uh, to be a man is not to show gentleness and kindness, 
and self-control and patience and love control, like the fruits of the spirit have nothing to do with militant masculinity or toxic masculinity, it's sometimes called. And they're the kind of things that I've observed in pietism. And man, that that is going to be a tough sell to evangelicals who would just associate that, as you said, with a kind of weakness, a kind of submissiveness, a kind of surrender to like the secular forces of the world. Um, and pardon wants to say, yeah, that that's 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 the story we just heard last week, right? Like seeds sometimes need to die for new life to grow and like uh, clinging to power by any means necessary is not a Christ-like strategy for cultural enga engagement. So I, I, I don't really know what to do with that except kind of trust like there are seeds being planted. Like um, there are people who within evangelicalism, certainly outside of it, are being hurt by it or are aggrieved by it. Um, and then some of us who love it and want it to be changed and renewed and then maybe pietism has something to say about that. What that means for the mainline, like honestly, I, I don't know if I can really speak to it. Like I, I'm not sure what the obstacles there are, except that I think within mainline culture, pietism does manifest itself as a kind of legalism, right? Or a kind of like, um, well, it doesn't matter what's happening in this world, you know, the next world is what matters, right? It, it would be too heavenly minded to be earthly good. You know, like I, I do hear that, like again, from people I know who've gone to seminary in that tradition, that's what they're warned against. And so like, if, if what I'm saying does have some value, we'd have to overcome those sorts of assumptions about what pietism leads to. Like, is there a way that a sort of pietist renewal within those traditions could lead to like a kind of way of understanding convertive piety that isn't legalistic or a kind of holiness that isn't legalistic or, and that leads to social witness and movements for justice and social change, right? Like that, that's the obstacle probably that I run into on that side of Protestantism. Tell me a little bit about, you talked a little bit about the um, Moravians mm -hmm. and what is the connection with Moravians and Pietism? Yeah, it's um, probably, you should probably talk to a Moravian to see like how much they think they're part of this. But historically again, like there's a kind of origin story. That's kind of where this all starts. So uh, the founder of Moravianism is this German nobleman named Nicolaus von Zinzendorf. So it's like 1720s or so. His godfather was Philip Spener, the founder of pietism. He had studied at the University of Halle. He had connections to Halle pietism um, and drew at least some of those themes out, right? The, the, the sense of um, the need for conversion. But he understands it differently. I mean, like one of the kind of German pietist models of conversion is that you go through this extraordinarily difficult process of repentance called the Buskampf, where you're like reduced to tears at your own sinfulness. And then at the last minute, God breaks in by grace and changes you, right? And, and Zinzendorf says, no, this is about joy, right? This is not about like feeling like a worm or something. It's about the joy of knowing Christ. Um, although he also has this notion of like, one way we do this is by meditating on the wounds of Christ, right? He has his own kind of version of convertive piety. Um, I think the other similarity is Zinzendorf has this very strong impulse not to form a new church, right, which Moravianism will become its own distinct um, branch of the family tree. But early on, what he's trying to do is to say, how can we restore the unity of the church? How can we heal the wounds of the Reformation and all the other conflicts before it? And that is something that the pietists at least aspire to if they don't always work towards. They, they end up often staying in their Lutheran church, but they at least have this notion of you know, if the belief system doesn't matter as much, why can't we do mission together? Why can't we evangelize together? Why can't we seek justice together? And so like, there's a kind of affinity there. But then Moravianism really develops in its own interesting ways, right? It has its own center in Europe called Herrenhut. It sends out its own missionaries um, all around the world. And then when it gets to North America, 
in, in places like Nazareth and Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, right? It forms its own kind of communities, its own traditions, and eventually its own structures. Um, so different provinces in North America is how the Moravians were organized. So, yeah, it, it's probably more like a cousin tradition at this point, kind of like Methodism is a cousin tradition, but it, it's at least got some kind of like, you know, original connections and then maybe some affinities that, that are still there. Where do you see pietism going in the next two years? Um, I won't say decades, but just in the next few years, where do you think, uh, will we see more examples of pietism throughout American culture? I would hope so. Like, I mean, I think if I'm being um, hopeful about this and, you know, I mean, it's, it's not like this is measured by pietism becoming a better well-known term or something, but like if, if, the kind of things I value in pietism are being expressed elsewhere. Like that's what I'd hope to see. Like the story of pietism is it usually, it doesn't happen all that intentionally. It's almost like it's kind of a backlash against something else, right? There's a Bethel seminary church historian for a long time named Virgil Olson, who I like to quote. And back in the fifties, he said, um, pietism always is going to emerge when Christianity has been hollowed out or when it's just kind of like scholasticism or um, when it's just the form, but it has no substance. Like, and it, you almost kind of have to like trust it will produce the seeds of its own rebirth, right? Because there is something I think just innately winsome about at least some of what I'm describing, at least when I talk about it with people, like there, there's at least pieces of it they can respond to. There, there's this kind of notion of, well, maybe it's okay to have a very humble, modest sort of ambition um, for what Christians can do in the world. And, and maybe even more importantly than that, maybe it's okay to say like these beliefs that we debate don't matter as much as relationship, as community, and as living your faith out in the world, right? Like maybe that's something that will be more appealing to people than I can see right now. Like I, I do see it in my students sometimes. Like I, I think they're fairly dissatisfied with evangelicalism and what it's become. You know, I don't know that they were all that thrilled about what it looked like the last five or six years or what it looks like in Charlottesville in 2017 or on January 6th, right? That, I don't think that squares with their notion of what it means to follow Christ. And so if it's going to happen, it's probably going to happen that way, right? Like an individual level and in a certain congregation or in a school or college, seminary, say like, what other resources do we have to draw on it? And like, where have we gone astray? And how can we get back to relationship with God, um, relationship with each other, and how we serve in the world, right? Like, and, and maybe pietism has some resources to offer there. That, that's as much as I really hope for. Like there, there's, you know, whenever you publish a book, you have these kind of grandiose notions of, oh, this is going to change the world. And, you know, I'll be, I'll be on the Today Show talking about pietism. <laughs> that's, it's ridiculous. It's its own kind of vanity. And instead, it's been things like this, right? It's been a lot of conversations, a lot of like adult Sunday school classes, podcasts, interviews, just talking to people, helping them think through like, how does this connect to your story? Like, does this give you any kind of hope for thinking about what the future might look like? That, And that's probably what we should, that's why I should have been hoping for all along, right? And, and the nice thing about having a book is then I can refer people back to it and say, hey, like start here and maybe they'll give you ideas of someone else to read or someone's story that you really resonate with. And so that, that's the nice idea of the permanence of a book, uh, however many copies it actually sells. So if anyone wants to know a little bit more about pietism or know more about you, where should they go on, on the web? Sure. Uh, so for about 10 years now, I've had a blog called Pietist Schoolman. <laughs> It's also hard to spell. Like that's the other problem with pietism. But uh, pietist is P-I-E-T-I-S-T, -E and then schoolman. 
So if you just put that all together, or if you just Google Chris Gerritz, that's G-E-H-R-Z, that's also hard to spell, uh, you'll find me. So on the blog, you'll find, uh, there's a whole page just of like uh, pietism, question mark, to give you some further readings and resources. Um, I, I haven't blogged there as much. I've been blogging for Pathos the last uh, six years or so at a, at a blog called The Anxious Bench. And so I'll write about pietism to some extent there. And maybe the other place is look up this online conversation I talked about. It's, uh, if you just Google respectful conversation, it's run by a guy named Harold Hay. He's done a few of these and this year's is about following Jesus. So if you just Google respectful conversation, go to his, his website, you'll find my essay, but then these other 11 conversation partners writing about um, their traditions. So like this, this month we're doing Wesleyanism and Sarah Lancaster wrote a piece about what it's like to be a Wesleyan and now we all have responded to it. Um, I think next month is the Black Church tradition, although it might be the Mormons are next. I can't remember the order we're going in. Yep. Right. So those are those are a few places you can find me on the net. Okay, cool. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time um, to chat and for uh, helping for to enlighten people about this important tradition in Christianity. Well, Dennis, thanks for giving me the chance to, to think this through. I, I don't do this all the time, so it's good like every few months to kind of rethink this again. I appreciate you letting me kind of talk out loud for a while. Not a problem. Not a problem. All right. Take care. All right. Thank you. discussion was helpful for you, uh, gives you a better understanding of what pietism is all about. As I've said, and I'm trying to keep my promise, um, I'm trying to close with only one call to action. So here is this episode's call to action. I'd love that you would leave a rating or a review uh, at the podcast platform of your choice. When you do that, when you leave a good rating or review, it makes... Um, this podcast easier for others to find. And so you can, uh, that's pretty easy. You can, I, I've made it easy for you. You can use a link that's in the show notes to leave your rating and review. Well, that is it for this episode of Enroute, the podcast that is at the intersection of Church and Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, Godspeed, and I'll see you soon. Thank you.